Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. And I am Chiara Cordelli from the University of Chicago. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Amber Van Arik about lesbian separatism. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, what were the, some of the major themes um, that these women's stories shared? Um, so the women I interviewed uh were part of the lesbian separatist community either during the mid to late 1970s or the 1980s. Um, they all argued lesbian separatism was necessary and useful at the time, with um, some of them still advocating for its use now. Um, however, some also called it a zeitgeist of the time or a political dead end rather than a lifelong or long-term commitment, um, which was interesting. Um, all of the participants had prior activist experience, so um, experience in Back to the Land, women's liberation, gay liberation, um, communism or socialism, and even the peace movement, um, as well as experience of marginalisation, either as a woman or specifically uh, as a lesbian, uh, which drew them toward a lesbian focus and then eventually from there, lesbian separatism. Um, the spaces that these women created were both social and political. So there was a lot of positive socialising going on, like dancing and camping, sports and games and things like that. And there was also, at the same time, significant activism happening, um, calling out sexism, advocating for women's safety on the streets, fighting against male violence, um, educating women on health and safety and independence and also challenging our cultural norms, like um, having uh, anti-war demonstrations on Anzac Day and um, educating the public on what war means for women, things like rape and stuff like that. Um, they also created uh, a significant sense of belonging for women who were marginalised in broader society with these spaces, um, which attracted, you know, younger generations to, to join um, so they have, have a sense of um, belonging and, and positive um, understanding of what it means to be a lesbian. Um, so they were also incredibly creative, all of these women that I interviewed, um, with either things like singing and making music, developing radio programs, um, doing street theatre, creating poetry or other forms of writing, um, painting and craft, photography, sculpture, screen printing, um, you know, and then even like having film festivals and, and music festivals and all this kind of stuff that they were doing um, in their activism and community building. And um, also uh, most of these spaces were short-lived 
um, such as community centres or share houses or squats, um, spanning, you know, av averaging only a few years. Um, it seems that women's lands are the ones that tend to sustain, although in Western Australia um, it only lasts a few years as well. Um, however, um, often spaces that they created that didn't last very long, like refuges and health centres, would reopen or adjust over time under um, different management or um, different locations, um, and they have continued on. Um, and despite this um, short-lived nature, um, these, all these women that I interviewed were um, remained in lesbian feminist communities for decades, um, engaging in various forms of activism for women's and lesbian rights, and some do so even to this day in various forms. Um, some talked about how they, they weren't able to, you know, march on the streets, but they were still doing other things um, for women's rights, for lesbian rights, and they're all still very passionate about their politics, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too because when you were mentioning, like, women... Uh, working in refuges and then just women, you know, protesting on the streets, uh, it seemed to be that um, it was sort of like the, the personal is political. So um, mm -hmm. a lot of lesbians live their lives being very political but doing a lot of sort of, you could say, unpaid activism as well. Oh, yes. And, and also the, the paid activism, like working in refuges. I remember I, I met one lesbian and she said that um, she worked in a refuge for a year and then, you know, that, that was it. Her contract was up and then another woman would take over and it was to sort of do a bit of job sharing as well. So did, did, you, um, did you sort of do a bit of a distinction between the paid and unpaid activism? Um, yeah, there was uh, a lot of, uh, particularly in Western Australia, there was a lot of fighting for funding for these things like refuges and stuff. So um, a lot of the time um, while they were fighting for funding, they were unpaid um, and there were some women who were, you know, slightly better off financially, like they were middle class or they had a, a good a chunk of savings that they, you know, lived off their savings until they could be paid and some of them never got paid. Um, there were only um, a few women that actually had paid positions and a lot of the time it was because they were um, professional as well. So they were like nurses or doctors or psychiatrists and things like that. So um, the, the paid element was always kind of pushed in that direction towards more um, paying staff rather than um, paying maybe the activists. So, um, yeah, it was interesting that, in Western Australia, yeah, there wasn't a lot of paid work. A lot of it was just kind of living off your savings or living off Centrelink or the doll or whatever you want to call it at the time, um, just to, yeah, live your activism basically. Mm. Yeah, and it, it sounds it's interesting when you were saying that the women sort of living on the land in that sort of community lasted longer. Well, why do you think that was? I think because... It was uh, easier to separate from the complications of life. So a lot of uh, the women that I spoke to were more um, based in urban centres and things like that. They decided to stop being separatists, usually for career reasons. So it became too difficult to stick with their separatist politics, their hard stances when um, it would get in the way of, of their career, their jobs, because, you know, they were a lot of the time people-focused 
industries where they couldn't separate from um, men, even if they were working in the health centres or health-based industries where they'd try and focus on women, they'd still have, you know, male partners or male co-workers to deal with and it was hard to have that commitment and still um, work. So I think when you're living on the land, you've made that commitment to find alternative ways of working that you're not in direct uh, contact with men all the time and and it's a lot easier to avoid that um, difficulty of having to choose because I think making the commitment to live on the land, you've made that choice by that point, whereas I think lesbian separatists in cities were constantly having to battle that choice of, like, you know, um, what about children, what about my job, um, things like that made it a lot harder to keep that commitment, whereas I think on the land it's a lot easier, yeah. So what um, contributions to Western Australia and women's history did these lesbians make? Um, so we've talked a bit about it, but they opened refuges for victims of rape and domestic violence, as well as women's health and community centres, um, which some of them still operate today, although under different names or different locations and organisers. Um, and as I said, it was particularly difficult to maintain because they were constantly justifying their need for funding from the government, and that could be quite exhausting for women, um, which I think is why they shut down a lot or they went under new um, organisations because these women would just be burnt out from having to fight for, you know, the need just for funding, their fight for their purpose, basically. Um, and they also um, did a lot of activism. So they established Reclaim the Night in West Australia and kept it running for several decades. Um, and the tradition of a, of a majority lesbian organised Reclaim the Night in West Australia still continues. Um, it was one that I was involved in as well. Um, they also did uh, anti-war demonstrations for at least a decade. Um, they challenged sexism in businesses and universities, um, making um, the, the making women um, feel like it's more accessible to attend university or different you know, courses and stuff, and challenging the sexism in those courses. Um, they worked for the women's electoral lobby, um, where they interviewed politicians and discerned um, their politics in relation to women's interests and needs and things like that. Um, but also they contributed to um, society and culture in West Australia by just being visibly lesbian. You know, um, they allowed lesbians to find them, young and old. Um, they also challenged the oppressive pressure to pass as heterosexual, um, showing that there was nothing to be ashamed of by being lesbian. Um, and they questioned norms and challenged them publicly and redefined what it meant to be a lesbian as something positive, something to be proud of. Um, and um, by separating from heteropatriarchal influence, they discovered that being lesbian was not only something that was natural, but also something to be celebrated, something wonderful. Um, and they made that known publicly. Um, they also created safe spaces for lesbians, um, even heterosexual women as well. Um, and they then asserted and defended those safe spaces when they were challenged by men. Um, so we talked a bit about it, but the hostility and violence from men um, was pretty frequent. Um, the stories that these women shared with me um, about women's dances, for example, men would throw urine at them, they'd yell and scream at them, um, saying terrible things, they'd flatten their tyres, um, they'd even record their licence plates 
just to kind of threaten women um, and try and reassert male control and remind women that uh, there's um, violence when they try and challenge patriarchy. Um, and yet these women continue to fight. They continue to say, no, we are going to do what we want to do. We want to be in women-only space and we're going to make sure that um, that remains. Um, and by doing so, they created avenues for women to learn new skills, which were deemed for men like mechanics and woodworking, plumbing, electricals, things like that. And they established businesses um, which showed these skills um, and they demonstrated to the broader public by having these businesses that women can do these things and they're trustworthy in these things. Um, and they gave avenues for women to avoid traditional expectations of womanhood like marriage and children so that they could pursue a career or pursue education. Yeah, look, it sounds like there was, um, just for lesbians in general, there's, you know, there's a, uh, there's, um, you know, so many, so many things against you, and especially um, a friend of mine who's who's only about ten years older than me. She came out mm. when she was seventeen to her parents and told them she was a lesbian, and they had her committed to a psychiatric institution where yeah. she underwent shock treatment. Mm. Which um, you know, it's just quite quite disgusting actually when you look back and you think it wasn't all that long ago that this was actually happening to lesbians um was mm. that of another another theme that was common amongst the women that you interviewed um there was a couple of women um no, nothing as horrifying as that um they shared stories of women they knew that had gone through severe violence because of um being a lesbian, um, including like incest and corrective rape and things like that. Um, most of the time, the women that I spoke to either had to deal with a lot of uh, ostracism from family rather than um, being committed or um, experiencing violence. Um, or, you know, they basically felt that they had to go out on their own and, and seek out a life for themselves because the home life was too hostile or unaccepting. Um, lots of bullying and harassment in schools and things like that. That was a pretty common theme. Um, so, yeah, I, and I think that's a big reason why these women sought out these lesbian-only spaces because they were so positive compared to everything in their life telling them that to be a lesbian is to be something to be ashamed of, something to, to change about yourself. Um, and, yeah, and this was, you know, the 1970s, this is 1980s when this was, you know, widespread, and it still happens today. I, I have people in my life who still experience this and they're in their 20s and younger, you know. Mm, yeah, they're still experiencing that. So is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, yeah, I just wanted to emphasise the positives that uh, lesbian-only space provides. Um, we've talked about it a lot, but I just want to, you know, emphasise that it allows you to learn that your sexuality is natural, something to celebrate, um, and that the social norms that we have about womanhood is ridiculous and oppressive. Um, and being in these spaces gives us the capacity to build agency and self-love and to learn skills and freely discuss ideas and develop our voices. Um, I, I've changed so much just from being involved in the lesbian community myself, let alone 
the political elements of the lesbian community. I, I think I've gained a confidence and a, and a pride in myself that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't been involved in these spaces. And a part of that is also the importance of gathering in person together, not only for your personal fulfilment, like personal growth, but also to articulate and advocate for your needs as a group. Um, most, most of the time these days people, you know, get together online and I think there are benefits to online socialising and activism, but there's something to meeting in person that you just can't get online. Um, and, yeah, the experiences I've had in person are incredibly eye-opening. I mean, I wouldn't have been exposed to the past about lesbian separatism or even just lesbian activism if I hadn't been going to, you know, a potluck once a month with a bunch of lesbians, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really great to just try and find your local lesbian community and, and get involved and just, even if it's just to socialise, it doesn't have to be political. I mean, it will inevitably be political because that's what lesbians are like, I think, across pretty much across the board in some way or another. But, yeah, I, that's just one thing that I wanted to emphasise is, yeah, find your local lesbians. <laughs> Oh, sure. So do you have any future study plans within this field? Um, yeah, I'm hoping to do a PhD next year on this, um, just looking at it more broadly rather than as a historical phenomenon because it's certainly something that is still going on, um, like in Amazon Acres, um, the, the land over in New South Wales still exists. Um, and I want to explore how the lesbian community feels about separatism now, you know, um, I know so many women that like the idea of lesbian separatism of all ages, um, and but they feel like they can't do it. They feel like it's too too difficult or for, foreign of a concept. And I I'd like to explore why that is, and and what ways can we make lesbian only space accessible to these women who are interested in it but feel like they can't do it. Yeah, yeah, especially with Amazon Acres because. I think um, there were a couple of younger women who were really interested, but uh, they, they well, firstly, just on the practical side, they none of them had a driving licence. And yeah. you sort of needed, because it was such an isolated area, to sort of drive to get in and out in case there was a medical emergency. And I think mm. the other thing is to, is technology, because there wouldn't mm. be any internet there. And for a young person to sort of, give up all the technology that's well I mean I don't think I'd really like to give up my technology either (laughs) (laughs) so I mean that that's a really big ask and Mm. um and especially now with um Centrelink and the the sort of rules around that uh, it was a bit more free and easy sort of you know 20 30 years ago to be able to do that so so there's just a just a couple of things that are preventing sort of younger younger lesbians from mm. from doing that, but I mean, you know, I think when there's a problem, there's always a solution. There's some way around it. Yeah, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's what what I hope to to nut out when I talk to these women in um, the coming year years or year. Yeah. Great. Oh, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking with. And Van Ari about lesbian separatism. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've liked the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. Fantastic.